Welcome to Skim This. It's been more than a week since the now infamous attack on the US Capitol, but the ripple effects are still being felt. Congress is in the spotlight as it wrestles with what sort of political punishment President Trump could face for his role in encouraging crowds to march on Congress last week. The security failings that led to people breaking down the doors of Congress and nearly walking into the doors of the Senate are also being looked at. How could this have possibly happened and how safe is next week's inauguration? Then we've got a quick skim on this week's changes to the COVID vaccine rollout, a recap of the hottest and strangest tech coming out of the CES conference, and some advice on how to skim your resume. All right, let's do it. Breaking news tonight. President Trump is now the first American president to be impeached to twice. Be impeached. twice. Members of the U.S. House of Representatives have formally charged him with inciting insurrection. On Wednesday, the U.S. House of Representatives voted to impeach President Donald Trump. Again. So how'd we get here? Quick recap. Last week, a group of rioters broke into the U.S. Capitol in a siege that turned deadly. A number of politicians and scholars pointed to the president's rhetoric, saying he encouraged the riot. And now, some lawmakers on Capitol Hill are trying to hold the president accountable. Earlier this week, House Democrats filed a single article of impeachment against the president, saying he poses a clear and present danger while he remains in office. So they charged him with, quote, incitement of insurrection. If this whole impeachment thing has you saying, this feels like deja vu, you're right. Think of this like impeachment, the sequel. That's because President Trump was already impeached by the House back in 2019. Though the charges he was facing then, obstruction of Congress and abuse of power, are different than the ones he faces today. As a reminder, just because the House impeaches a president doesn't mean that the president has been found guilty. It's up to the Senate to convict a president and remove them from office. And back in the first impeachment, the Senate ultimately didn't find the president guilty of those charges. So Trump got to stay in the Oval. Now what's different this time? Unlike the first time, 10 Republican lawmakers joined their Democratic colleagues in favor of impeachment, making this the most bipartisan impeachment in history. Still, 10 House Republicans out of hundreds isn't a lot. And many Republicans on Capitol Hill are saying this impeachment drama may divide the country further. Also, unlike the first time, timing is everything. President Trump has less than a week left in office, so it's unlikely the Senate will vote to remove him from the White House before then. And the Senate trial will probably begin once the president is out of office. That post-inauguration timing is kind of tricky, though, since a Senate trial could take away resources and distract from President-elect Biden's agenda. That could be extra problematic because the incoming president has no cabinet members currently confirmed by the Senate. As to whether or not the Senate will eventually vote to convict Trump, that's anyone's guess. Two-thirds of the Senate is needed to convict, so Democrats will need at least 17 Republican senators to join them. And that's not guaranteed. Though Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer says, if the president is convicted, the Senate could hold another vote to ban Trump from holding future political office. And they only need a simple majority for that vote to pass. As we all wait to see how impeachment the sequel ends on the Senate floor, President Trump is also dealing with some other thorny issues, like banks and other companies cutting ties with him and the Trump Organization. 
or even the PGA backing out of hosting its golf tournaments at Trump properties. Meaning President Trump is facing business consequences in addition to political consequences for his role in last week's siege on the Capitol. For the latest updates on impeachment, subscribe to our daily newsletter. Head on over to theskim.com. Next up, the more time passes since rioters stormed the Capitol last week, the more it's becoming obvious that this was a massive security failure. So today we're going to try to answer what went wrong from a security standpoint and what's being done to stop something like this from happening again. All right, so what did go wrong? Short answer is a lot. Capitol Police were surprised that what they thought would be a political protest would turn into an actual attack on the Capitol. And once things turned dangerous, Capitol Police officers, one of whom died after sustaining injuries during the riot, were clearly overwhelmed. A few hundred National Guard troops were also posted nearby to the Capitol at the time of the attack. Though, get this, they didn't have the authority to be anywhere on Capitol grounds, even if DC's mayor wanted them to lend a hand. By the time the National Guard finally showed up, it was hours after the Capitol break-in started. Crazy, right? These security failings are even harder to explain since it's not like what unfolded was exactly a secret. In fact, it was predictable. Very predictable. That's Jutta Clausen. She's a professor in politics at Brandeis University and an expert in domestic and international terrorism. Ever since more than a dozen members of a Michigan militia group were arrested last year for planning to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer and conduct televised executions of lawmakers, Professor Clausen said she's been expecting more political violence. The minute I were watching the footage from the uh, storming of the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., and noticed people carrying uh, these zip ties, uh, that was what I thought about. And it's not just Professor Clausen that had a suspicion something bad might happen last week. For weeks, there'd been online posts in which people openly discussed gathering in Washington to try to interrupt Congress's certification of the election results. So law enforcement had all the intelligence they needed to prepare, but... The lack of information sharing, uh, the usual threat assessment mechanisms uh, were not engaged. There were not advanced uh, meeting uh, within the context of the Joint Terrorism Task Forces, which are regional coordination efforts between the different law enforcement agencies. That didn't happen. I think we, we need to just say that uh, this was a situation where all of the information was there, but no coherent picture actually ended up forming. Since last week, this failure to act on intelligence pointing to a potentially dangerous situation at the Capitol has led to some staffing changes. The head of the Capitol Police has resigned, and so have the people who manage security for both the Senate and the House. But with the inauguration less than a week away, these resignations probably aren't going to solve much. Which brings us to our next question. What's going to change after last week's events to prevent this from happening again? One thing that's been talked about is formally designating groups that participated in last week's attack, groups like the Proud Boys, as domestic terrorist organizations. A terrorist label might sound like it turns up the pressure on these groups, but it turns out that might not be as effective as it sounds, since domestic terrorism isn't a federal crime. As in, there's just no criminal offense associated with it. 
Brett Steele is the Director of Prevention and National Security at the think tank, the McCain Institute. Here in the United States, the Secretary of State is authorized to designate an organization as a foreign terrorist organization, emphasis here on the word foreign. The charges for domestic terrorism in the United States Code are incredibly limited. For example, if you use certain types of mechanisms like explosives, uh, then there may be a terrorism charge. But generally speaking, if you're using a firearm, if you're using vehicle ramming incidents, there's no domestic terrorism charge available. So would the U.S. government formally designating groups as domestic terrorists really help? The advances is that once you designate a group, then being a member of that group and providing support for that group becomes a criminal offense. The disadvantage is that, generally speaking, it also can make it much harder to actually identify the groups because they go underground and they then assume a different type of underground network. I just don't think that this type of criminalization is at all useful. So if threatening people who might incite violence with a federal crime and the domestic terrorism label won't do much to stop them, especially in the limited time before next week's inauguration, what kind of security response are we going to see? This one is probably obvious from the photos you may have seen from D.C. this week. It's arming up for the inauguration. National Guard troops are already camped out at the Capitol, and D.C. is looking more and more like a military base with each passing day. In total, around 20,000 National Guard troops could be there by inauguration next week. And this time, they'll be armed. Airports and hotels in the area are also tightening up security. Delta Airlines has banned passengers from checking guns onto any flights heading to airports near Washington. And DC's mayor is urging people to steer clear of the Capitol on inauguration day. And as if COVID precautions weren't enough, public access to the event will be severely restricted. As for what the experts we spoke to think, Here's Professor Clausen. Well, I think we are dealing with a very uncertain threat assessment for the inauguration. The question is, uh, how many people are going to be ready to travel again for the inauguration? Uh, the people who turned up in Washington, D.C., you know, they came from far away. I don't think those same people are going to go traveling again. Uh, in my view, I think that uh, the greater fear is actually what's going to happen in state capitals. That's right. The FBI is now warning of the possibility for violence in all 50 state capitals, in addition to Washington, D.C., in the lead up to the inauguration. And Steele points out, like last week, assessing the threat level in the days to come isn't straightforward. It is genuinely hard to assess the threat, even when people are making explicit threats. Most people never follow through on them. And so it, it can be difficult to say, okay, Let's look at all of the statements that were made online and say, wow, we really should have seen this coming. But it's also not everyone who makes a threat follows through on that threat. Uh, some people get swept up in the moment um, and some people have a very clear plan. Got a minute? A few weeks ago, we described the COVID vaccine rollout as being kind of like boarding a plane, with different priority groups getting the vaccine first. The first group, called Group 1A, 
includes healthcare workers and people living in long-term care facilities. As of this week, around 9 million Americans have been vaccinated. After that, groups 1B and 1C were supposed to get vaccinated next, and it looked like there was still enough time for people in those groups to hit the food court before boarding. Until a surprise announcement this week that the vaccine rollout was about to speed up. So what's going on and who's in line to get vaccinated now? Here's the answer in 60 seconds. This week, the Department of Health and Human Services, or HHS, made a big announcement. First, it said the government is gonna dip into its backup supplies of COVID vaccines and start giving them out ASAP. Since COVID vaccines require two doses a few weeks apart to be most effective, states were keeping a lot of doses in storage to guarantee everyone could get a second shot. Here was HHS Secretary Alex Azar. We now believe that our manufacturing is predictable enough that we can ensure second doses are available for people from ongoing production. Part two of the story is, who's gonna get these freed up vaccine doses? People age 65 and over, and under age 65 with a comorbidity, because we have got to expand the group. Though, before you drive to the pharmacy hoping it's suddenly your turn to get vaccinated, the truth is, this week's changes could actually mean the vaccine rollout will look more different now depending on where you live. Azar says states should focus on getting the most people vaccinated as quickly as possible, so vaccines don't go unused. And he says states that do this will get more vaccine doses. Enter a 50-state race to vaccinate. Except just like sitting in economy and being told, you can't use the first-class bathroom, don't be surprised if certain states start pulling ahead in the vaccine push, possibly leaving you stuck in coach. How'd we do? Want us to skim a burning question from the news on an upcoming episode? Send us an idea to audio at theskim.com. Last week, we got some bad news about the job market, specifically the job market for women. Employers in the United States cut 140,000 jobs last month. And when you look into who is losing those jobs, it turns out it's women. In terms of net jobs gained and lost, women lost 156,000 jobs, while men actually gained 16,000 overall. To make sense of why this is happening and how we can explain that gap between men and women, we called up a friend of the show. Catherine Ann Edwards. I'm a labor economist for the RAND Corporation. Edwards told us it's important to look at these numbers in context. I think it helps to go back to April. This was the first month of the lockdown when the U.S. saw absolutely catastrophic job losses. So it was 20.7 million jobs in a month were gone. Since then, in May and June, we posted really large increases that were both significant, but nowhere near the size of the hole that had been created in the labor market. Every subsequent month has seen a decrease in the number of jobs that were added to the economy. And in every subsequent month, the economy is getting, the growth is getting weaker and weaker. So even if the economy is weaker overall, there's still the issue of women making up 100% of the job losses in December. Edwards told us those numbers actually represent a much broader pattern of how the recession last spring has affected women differently. Men and women don't hold the same jobs, which means that from a very primal place, they're never at risk equally in the labor market in any situation. 
This recession, the risks have really stacked against the industries and occupations in which women are overrepresented. And critically, those industries and occupations are more likely to be women of color. So it's a very particular risk that is manifesting through the pandemic. So that's one reason women make up those job losses. Why else? Women were in riskier jobs because they were more likely to be in healthcare and retail trade. And then the third would be care. And that's a story that we that you know we've talked about a lot that if you do not have childcare, someone has to stay home from work. And that someone often ends up being the mom. So this has been like a triple hit to women this recession and women in the workplace. Edwards told us in order to reverse this trend, two key groups have to buy into getting women back to work. I think of as the two central policymakers coming out of this recession are going to be employers and the federal government. On the employer side, a lot of evidence and research points to the fact that where we really see the crowbar kind of entering in and making the wedge between male and female workers is whether or not women are different. So let me give you an example. High-powered law firms, like corporate law, your friends in finance who work until 1030 at night, every night, because that's what they all do. If you're a mother with two kids, there's no reason why you necessarily put in less work than people who stay at the office till 1030, but you can't stay at the office until 1030, right? If you're going to be productive, you have to be productive in a different way. However, if the norm of the office is that staying in the office till 1030 is a code for productivity, you're going to get penalized. We see this as where women fit relative to the culture. Are they the exception or are they the rule? If they're the exception, that's a wedge in which you can pay them less and promote them less and incorporate them less into the structure. But if they're the rule, right, then it becomes, well, we have flexibility for all of our workers, not just a waiver of flexibility for women who just had a kid. So employers, through changing culture and policies, can make work more flexible for everyone, especially women. As for the government? The shortest and probably most succinct way to say this is that the federal government has never made a large-scale investment in women workers. We do not have federally guaranteed paid family leave. We do not have accessible and affordable childcare. We do not have universal access to preschool, and we do not have universal access to after-school programs. The federal government has the ability to make incredible actions to do this that are long overdue. I mean, my mother should have had those things, right? I, it shouldn't be that I'm, I'm explaining why they're good economic investments in 2021 when they were really good economic investments in 1981. Making those investments matters because as a reminder, women staying at work has an outsized influence on the economy as a whole. The size of the U.S. economy is very much determined by the number of people working. That means that in order for the economy to recover and to grow, unless, but if we do not encourage labor force participation, we are clipping our own wings in terms of how fast or how large we can recover. Which brings us to this week's installment of our How to Skim Your Life 2021 New Year's Challenge, How to Skim Your Resume. No matter what stage of your job search you're actually in, It's a good idea to make sure your resume is ready to go, which includes updating it with new info and getting rid of things that don't really need to be there in the first place. We wanted to help you skim your resume, so we called in an expert. Hi, 
I'm Amanda Augustine, and I am the resident career expert for Top Resume, which is the largest resume writing service in the world. And two skimmers. Hi, my name is Yurang Jang. And hi, everyone. I'm Carolyn Nieberding. To talk about resume do's and don'ts. Let's get down to the first question on Yurang's mind. There's like a myth saying that you only get 10 to 15 seconds of a hiring manager's time just to skim through that resume. So what makes that resume stand out? That's a great question. It's not a myth. Amanda told us standing out starts with design. In order to stand out, it's not necessarily having the flashiest template and I think people get really caught up on what can I do to really stand out and frankly if you start messing with a format and it's not in a traditional format that a recruiter is accustomed to they don't want to hunt for information design is queen so you want to be very consistent in how you label things how are you formatting job titles how are you formatting start and end date the most important part of that design strategy is clarity You want to set the stage so that when they quickly glance at your resume, they understand why you're pursuing the job that you want today. And if you aren't interested in making everything size 12 times New Roman. I know my resume is like, has a bunch of colors, a bit of a different format from a lot of the traditional ones. I guess at what point is it, are you doing too much formatting? It 100% depends on industry. I think some industries are going to be more of that very traditional bricks and mortar, and they're going to expect a little less pizzazz, so to speak. I'm not opposed to color on a resume as long as it's one color and it's, you know, it's a good contrast to white. Also good to know. So you, like a lot of people I'm seeing, are putting a profile picture on their resume. And in truth, it's a big no-no for the U.S. job market. That's because of concerns around hiring discrimination. So skip that well-lit professional photo your roommate took. Got it. So you can get creative with design within reason. Next, what to actually put on your resume. Amanda told us, ask yourself one question every time you decide to write a new bullet. Every time you write something down, you basically want to ask yourself, so what? So what? What is the recruiter thinking? Remember, your resume is your brag sheet. There are times when you are in unusual situations where you're holding two roles at once or Mm -hmm. doing multiple jobs just due to lack of resources and time. I think it's important to convey it in a resume, but also it might come off as being too braggy or whatnot. First of all, you're never allowed to say you're being too braggy. That brag sheet should hit your specific accomplishments. Been promoted? Taken on more responsibilities? Started a new project? All those things should be there. Save your bullet points for your bragging points. Use that to call their eye to, these are the things I accomplished. These are the reasons why you want to hire me. So trying to really focus on, here's the result, here's what I accomplished, here's how I created that. But remember, this is a resume, not a diary. One thing to keep in mind is you don't necessarily have to have every job on your resume. It's not a transcript, right? It's a marketing document. And to market yourself to prospective employers, you should tailor your resume to reflect what they're looking for. Does the job posting say they're looking for certain qualifications? Make sure that the language in your resume reflects the language in their job description. And P.S., for companies that use machines to scan resumes, the machines are scanning for that language too. So... You want to work those into your resume, some of those in the skills, some of those in the professional summary, some of those throughout your work experience. That's going to help 
make sure that your resume is popping up when it's going through the technology. This all means you might be saving different versions of your resume if you're applying to multiple jobs with different descriptions. If this makes you think, how the heck am I going to get all of this on one page? Never fear. You have earned two pages. So no need to go crazy with the margins or your font size. Okay, so we've covered the basics, but let's get into some of the harder stuff, like... When someone does have a gap in jobs or in between jobs, and they didn't do, say, some sort of official fancy sabbatical or anything like that, how do you recommend handling that gap? The good news is that actually Top Resume did a study with recruiters in early fall 2020, so very recently, and we actually asked them, you know, how big of a deal is it to have an employment gap? And the overwhelming majority said, not a big deal anymore. They actually don't consider it to be a stigma. And honestly, there are so many people in that same boat that there is no longer such a stigma around a lengthy Um, you know, unemployment or lengthy employment gap on your resume. So I know a lot of people get hyper-focused on that. Don't let it derail your focus from what you should be focusing on, which is, okay, how do I best position my resume and how do I pursue the right leads? However, there are, of course, little things you can do. Things like... You could be taking on freelance work, even if it's pro bono. You could be doing an unpaid internship or offering your services on a consulting basis to friends and family or for paid gigs. 100% you're allowed to add that. I think it's important to keep in mind that you don't have to be paid for your work in order to put it on your resume. What classes are you taking? Is there a certification online that you were able to to earn during this time period or you're currently earning? That's just another indication. Look, I'm still keeping my skills sharp. I'm obviously still involved. I'm doing something with my time other than binge watching Bridgerton, right? Remember, those professional development activities can fill your time and any blank spaces on your resume. What else? Kind of in a similar vein, for those who are even considering about maybe doing a career switch or trying to do something very different, do you have Mm -hmm. recommendations on how to sort of translate your resume for um, those sort of scenarios? I think it's a great question because, frankly, some people's industries have really been hit especially hard. And it's not they have to shelf that career objective for, for at least the short term. I think it's really important to first just do your research and understand what's available uh, and what would make the most out of the skill sets you currently possess. So some of that is networking and talking to people and getting a better sense of how your skill set could be applied in a different arena that interests you and seems to be hiring now. It's also looking at different job resources just to get a better understanding of who truly is hiring right now and kind of putting that information together. That legwork is really, really important because you need that in order to rewrite your resume for a different goal. Once you have that goal fairly clear, you're then going back and looking at your resume and saying, okay, what's most relevant now? Which skill sets are most relevant and how can I highlight that? Uh, What information did I not include in my resume before about a certain job that now suddenly takes a higher priority? Okay, so to recap, A good resume, no matter what industry you're in, has a clean design that's easy to read. And it's a curated list of your accomplishments and previous roles, not necessarily an exhaustive one. That list or those accomplishments may change depending on what job you're applying for. So remember to tailor your resume and save multiple drafts. Keep in mind, gaps on your resume aren't a bad thing. 
and you can show off all that you do outside of work, like classes, professional certifications, or volunteer work to help fill any of those gaps. Other skills you've gained because of the pandemic, like project management, new software, or communication skills, should also go on your resume. Because hiring managers will definitely be looking for people who are flexible and fast on their feet, but you probably don't need to put proficient in Zoom. And finally, if you wanna switch industries, your resume can help get you that new role. Just remember to take stock of what skills you currently have and how they translate to the job you want. If you wanna tune up your own resume or hear more from Amanda, we'll leave some links in our show notes. Hey guys, you may have heard that we like to think about New Year's resolutions a bit differently than most. While we teach you how to skim your life, we also want to tell you about the Happiness Lab podcast, where Dr. Lori Santos asks, are we setting our New Year's goals the wrong way? Throughout January, Lori is talking to experts like psychologist Tara Brock and yogi Jessamine Stanley, who reveal that the secret to fulfilling your New Year's goals is to simply be nice. If being kinder to yourself needs to be bumped up on your priorities list, then listen to The Happiness Lab wherever you get your podcasts. Before we go today, we've got a quick update from Las Vegas, home to the Consumer Electronics Show, or CES, the greatest show on earth for new gadgets and tech. It's just large. Like it's the best way to start your year because you get all your steps in. You walk miles through all these booths and big and small. You see a bunch of terrible, terrible technology. Rewind. That's a normal January in the life of Heather Kelly, a technology reporter at the Washington Post. But this year, CES is 100% online, which Kelly doesn't love. My favorite part are these small companies that are usually in the bowels of CES. Like, I think they're in a literal basement of the sands. And that's where you find really interesting things. But the problem is you have to walk around and find them. You're not going to find them virtually looking through like a billion press releases for two reasons. One, like a press release does not tell you anything about a company. I want to see like their eyes. <laughs> I want to see if they're, is this something they actually built that they're excited about? And you also want to see a prototype, like, is this working? And there are no prototypes this year. So the pandemic has ruined a lot of things, including CES. But there has to be something getting buzzed this year, right? So last year, I wrote a CES story that was like, CES is increasingly about like a dark dystopian future. I didn't really predict that 2020 would literally be that dystopian future. I feel a little psychic, but there was some stuff there that kind of carried over this year. There was a lot of masks, but they were for air pollution and things like wildfires, because that was right around the time of the Australian wildfires. And now those same makers have tweaked them to be like, it's also great for a pandemic. I think every year CES does look into the future. And I really do think pandemics aren't something that, that are gonna disappear forever. And these UV cleaning robots might be around forever and face masks might be a part of our lives for more than just the next couple of years. All right. High-tech masks and germ-killing robots? Depressing, but we get it. And we also get the flip side of that. Tech that makes living in a pandemic less stressful. This is the headless cat robot. <laughs> I got one in the mail yesterday. Um, it's the Petit Kubo, and it's this Japanese robot that looks like a decapitated woodland creature, and its tail moves 
so that you feel less alone during quarantine and it has a little bit of weight to it. And if you press your head against it, you can hear a faint heartbeat. I mean, hey, if it's furry and cute and didn't do what my dog did this week and throw up at my feet while on a Zoom call, then maybe I can see the value. Also, this. Something that got a lot of attention this year, and I, I think it says a lot about us, is this little ice cream maker. It uses like Keurig-like pods. It also makes margaritas, maybe that's why it's a hit, and you put them in there and it just, it takes 90 seconds and it generates uh, a scoop of ice cream or margarita, or maybe both, depending on your mood. Wait a second, are robot pets and fancy margarita machines the best that the biggest tech companies in the world can do? Kelly says, in all seriousness, CES 2021 might be remembered for some tech that's actually useful, like better Wi-Fi. There is a new Wi-Fi standard coming out. This new Wi-Fi technology is called 6E. It's a generational improvement in Wi-Fi strength, kind of like 5G for cell phones. And Kelly's colleagues wrote that it's, quote, the equivalent of adding a whole new lane to your home's information superhighway. Though, caveat. It's going to be a while before it, it, it actually gets mainstream adoption, so I don't think it's going to really save us from our choppy Zoom meetings. Until then, we'll just be here, listening to the robotic heartbeat of the Petit Kubo. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Alex Carr and Luke Vargas, with additional help from Peter Bonaventure and Kira Long. Our head of audio is Graylin Brashear, and I'm your host, Justine Davey. Before we go, we wanted to point out that we made a mistake in last week's show, when we said Raphael Warnock, a Democrat just elected to the Senate from Georgia, was the first Black senator elected in a former Confederate state. Turns out, that's not the case. But he is the first Black Democrat elected to the Senate from a former Confederate state. Still historic, but definitely a key distinction. Thanks to one of our loyal listeners for writing in. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, for more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com. 